electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Bracing for the banks after a strong finish in 2023, the financials seem to be stuck in neutral. Will earnings season unleash a wave of buying, or is a pullback ahead? Will handicap the result? Plus, it can never happen again. Those were the words from Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun to our own Phil LeBeau today. So the question now is, how long will the MAX 9 be grounded, and how much will the impact be on the stock? And later, going nuclear, why uranium and uranium stocks have been surging, heading back to the future in Japan, and why that's a good thing. And our Steve and Courtney are ready to unveil their acronyms. One of the traders is scheming. Mm. The other is hoping for a wage hike. Those are hints. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. We start off with a countdown to the big bank earnings. J.P. Morgan, Citi, and Bank of America kicked the season into high gear on Friday, and the sector has been on a tear heading into the reports. JPM is up more than 20% in the past year, trading just off an all-time high. Meantime, Citigroup filing an AK in just the last half hour to give insight into what we could hear from them. The company saying it recorded a $1.7 billion charge in the fourth quarter due to an FDIC assessment and an additional $780 million charge from restructuring, which includes severance packages. So what else can we expect to hear from these reports? Guy, the bar was set high with those runs. Really high. And we'll throw up a JP Morgan chart to go back a few years. You'll see, to your point, we're trading at prior all time highs. We're also trading at about 170% ish of book value, north of two times tangible book, which for JP Morgan gets a little bit extended in terms of valuation. People will look at it at price to earnings. I don't look at it that way. I look at it just in terms of price to book and tangible book. Given the run up we've had, I think they really got to knock the cover off the ball to get this move going to the upside, given all sort of the headwinds that all these banks face, not least of which J.P. Morgan. True. And, and banks historically, and I mean, the last five or six quarters going into their numbers have really been on the skids. And, and so it is a little uncomfortable to see this, even though as a bank investor in a couple of the money center banks, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that the market is willing to put a bigger multiple either on their tangible book value, which I think is really probably the most appropriate. Guy's right. J.P. Morgan trades at a premium to the group and Citibank, which at one point was around 0.55 price to tangible book and just got too cheap. And, and you talk about that restructuring and some of those costs. The story with Citi is really one where I think we're trying to think of this, this bank in, in a new era, in a new light, and a, and a bank that's thinking about efficiencies, a bank that's thinking about productivity. And I think that's a multiple that actually can go higher. I think you, you, we expect to hear that their capital markets business probably, at least for this cycle, hit a bottom, either last quarter or the quarter before, that actually there's some resurgence in M&A and origination in some of the dynamics on the banking side. FIC, I have a feeling it's going to probably be strong. Uh, but for Citi, Bank, it's been about this sprawling kind of uh, presence globally that at times has been its own biggest nightmare. And I, I, I think this is a, a good era for Citibank. And I think the, the other side of this also is banks and capital and their ability to give capital back. Seems like we're a long way away from SVB at this point. In other words, in a good way for these banks. And I think investors are, are ready to get back in. I mean, a long way. Banks are in general up 35 percent since SVB. 
So that's a long, long, long way. And for Citi, I mean, it, it's about rationalization of this sprawling empire. You yeah. mentioned a restructuring story. We had Mike Mayo come out and say that Citi was his top pick. He really liked the story. And then we have BMO today cutting it to a to a market perform. Yeah, I, I think, well, Mike Mayo is, is usually bullish on, on banks, right? And he had a good year last year. But if you look at J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, those were the ones that really stood out as performers. I don't think that could happen again. And when you look at earnings trough, earnings bottom for most sectors. Financials, probably not. So I think financials are gauged to be down roughly three or four percent on the on the whole. But the insurance and this is through FactSet, the insurance arm of that is the one that's boosting it. So without the insurance arm of the financials, the financials should be down eight percent. So. I know that everyone waits for the for the financials to lead the market and the earnings. I'm, I'm bullish, but I don't think we're going to get great, stunning performance. I don't think they've led for a long. I mean, they haven't been that sort of barometer Important. for earnings uh, since probably before the financial crisis at this point. But in terms of the valuations going into the, the other thing to layer in is if you believe that a credit cycle is going mm -hmm. to happen. And that was sort of the point of this overarching BMO industry analysis in which it did downgrade City, it downgraded AXP as well. Second downgrade this week for American Express. But the concern is about credit quality, about the consumer's ability to pay, increasing delinquencies, etc. I think uh, Lizanne Saunders put out a tweet today. Credit card interest rates are now at the highs we haven't seen probably in the last 15 years, if not all times, 21.5% on average, which is extraordinary if you think about it. And your point is well taken. I do think there's going to be a credit event, and I do think unemployment rates going higher. I might be wrong, though. But if you think those things are minutely possible to happen, I think banks are going to be at least headwinds with banks are going to be there for the beginning part of 2024. With all that said, I mean, J.P. Morgan, if you look at flat earnings growth in terms of year over year, flat revenue growth in terms of year over year. And oh, by the way, Jamie Dimon's been pretty dour over the last 18 months. It's going to be interesting to see what he has to say, if he even speaks on the call. And, and there's going to be a succession plan. I think that's going to be the 2024. Mm -hmm. We're going to be worried more about where Jamie Dimon is going versus or, or who's taking over. So he's already stated that he's going to stay on until what's the number? 2026 until the headquarters is done in the city. Yeah. Is that the is that until the, the headquarters are done? They're still so, building. I drive so that's, I think that will dominate the conversation, but it's going to be hard. The premium that is put on J.P. Morgan with Jamie Dimon at the helm is probably very large, more than we can so really some of establish. So that away when the succession plan is announced. That, that's what I would guess. Mm. I, I just, I, I look at how investors are approaching the whole sector, and guys, right, I, I, the consumer is only going to weaken in terms of their credit quality, but it's amazing how the broader market dynamic that's including banks and in some level is, I think, because of banks. We're in a, living in a world where the sense is that the worst of the Fed's pressure is, is also letting up on the banks, and, and I think that's part of what this needs to be. I, there's no question that banks were pricing in a whole lot of credit concern that two or three quarters ago was even less apparent than it is today. In other words, the, I, I think there's still some of that to, to take off of the headwinds that were priced on these banks, by the way. And then you have Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and some of the brokers reporting. I, I think it's, again, a kind of a noisy quarter, but a place where they saw they definitely saw a return to some of those M&A dynamics that I think had really deteriorated. And I think going forward, they're going to be optimistic on what's coming. This, If you think the rates are going down significantly, then maybe banks, excuse me, then some of the companies that are coming to market can be more 
uh, patient in, in trying to raise debt and do equity deals. But look, if you think that there's a window that's open here, and I think central banks around the world, by the way, over the last week or so are showing they're trying to raise as much debt as possible. I think with lower rates, you're seeing companies run to market. I think that the capital markets dynamic is going to be very strong. That's what James Gorman and Morgan Stanley mm-hmm. said. He said when rates come down, you're going to see the floodgates open in terms of M&A and deals. Yeah, he chose this year or last year to, retire. to announce his retirement. <laughs> now, he got in at the right time. A lot of people say maybe he's exiting at the right time as well. I, I will, I, I'm fascinated to hear, again, what Jamie Dimon says in terms of commentary, given what he said over the last 18 months or so. And he really hasn't wavered in terms of some of the headwinds that he thinks are out there. If some of those headwinds have abated, I'd like to hear what he has to say. All right. Meantime, investors are eyeing tomorrow's CPI report. Will inflation have cooled further in December? Let's bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve. Yeah, it's a big number tomorrow, Melissa, that's going to test the market's optimistic outlook for Fed rate cuts. The consensus looks for a little hotter inflation on the headline and unchanged monthly rate on the core, but that's going to continue to bring down the year-over-year rate. Here are the numbers we're looking for. 0.2 on the top line, up from 0.1 in the prior month. That'll bring the year-over-year rate up a tick, 3.2% on the headline. But the core is looking to be unchanged, and that's going to bring the year-over-year rate down because, in part, base effects of bigger numbers dropping out from prior months. But it's numbers like these that, as officials like New York Fed President John Williams this afternoon, hailing the progress on inflation, but not ready to commit to cutting rates since the inflation rate remains elevated above the 2% target. Williams said this afternoon the Fed forecast for three cuts seemed reasonable to him, but only after the central bank is confident inflation is heading back towards the target. If there's a downside surprise tomorrow, it could come from the housing part of the report. Recent reports show rents have been falling, and those declines have yet to show up in the inflation numbers. Hey, maybe it happens tomorrow. It could happen. Separately, the CNBC NRF Retail Monitor finding retail sales, ex-auto and gas, up 0.4%. That is half of the strong number we got in November. Core retail, that takes out restaurants, struggled a bit, up just 0.2% compared to 0.7 in the prior month. So it was a good, guys, not great Christmas for retailers. And we'll have to watch to see if the December cooling is part of this broader economic slowdown. That's forecast and forecast and forecast by the street, but doesn't really come. Yeah, I think the rent um, aspect will be really interesting to watch. Steve, the Zillow rent index indicates rising to maybe flat, and that's a forward-looking index. We'll see what, what we get out of the CPI report. But I wanted to sort of zero in on this notion that inflation may be slowing, the rate, rate of inflation may be slowing, but consumers are still very uncertain about the future. And how does that impact what the Fed does and how the Fed sort of packages the message? I think the Fed goes on what they spend, not how they feel. I think you're talking about the this, this split between sentiment and spending. Um, I think the Fed is going to follow spending. I don't think there's at least much, much correlation you can get from the idea that there's this down sentiment that's it's out there. Um, I also think that I'm listening to your conversation. I, I feel like, and I get it, it's like you just touched a hot stove. You want to be careful the stove is not hot again. But we shouldn't necessarily be afraid of growth. Why do we believe, we didn't believe this before the pandemic, that if there's greater growth, for example, in consumer spending or business spending, that you won't have growth in supply to meet it? That's the way the world used to work. It is possible to have strong growth with the Fed cutting rates, and you have an increase in the businesses that provide the supply 
for that growth. And also to quote somebody else, um, you had growth can also lead to uh, 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 less inflation because you're building more plant and equipment. So I don't think we should be as afraid of growth as some people are, but I get why they are. No, I understand that, Steve. Listen, in terms of the job side of this equation, and I watch you every time there's a jobs report, the numbers come out, the numbers have been very good, but the revisions now for the better part of a year obviously have been disappointing. And I don't know how the math works at some point. My concern is that the unemployment rate, which whatever it is now, 3.7, is going to start to stair-step its way towards 4.5% when these revisions start to kick in and all the fire layoffs we've seen over the swath of industries make their way into the equation. I mean, am I right to look at it that way or am I just sort of grasping at straws here? Well... They're slightly separate. The revisions happen to the payroll side of the report. The unemployment rate is calculated from the uh, household report. But if if what you're asking about it, is there a general weakening? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that when you look at what you're talking about, which is the 10 of the past 11 months up through November, which is what we have revisions for, were revised downward. And you have to go back to I hate to say it, 2008 to find another year that had that kind of revisions, then, yeah, you should be worried about weakening in, in the job market. But, I mean, the expectation is that there's some weakening, but it doesn't get that high or that bad because people have been so, it's been so difficult to find labor. Plus, you know, it's interesting, Guy, there are some sectors I've been looking at, retail, healthcare, even leisure and hospitality, which have been big growth areas for jobs, that still are not either at their prior level or at a level that would account for the fact that the economy has grown since 2019. So there's this baseline of growth that I think is going to be mean that the payroll or the job market is going to be okay amid some weakening out there. Steve, great to see you. Thank you. Oh, happy New Year, by the way. Have yeah, a there you go. First Thank one. you, Melissa. You too. Out there. Yeah. Steve Leesman. I had to get that in. Yeah. I really don't say Happy New Year ever, except, except when, when I am on set and when Guy yeah. is here. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to last for Just a while. CPI, if I told you what the number was, do you think you would know how the markets would react? Uh, let's see. Um, I, I feel better about this one. I've been wrong uh-huh. on CPIs. Okay. The November CPI, which was a catalyst to the market, especially the banks, I, I do think uh, was one I got wrong. But I, I don't think that this CPI is going to do anything uh, to change the trajectory of how we're viewing this Fed. And I think ultimately it's going to take a lot to change the trajectory of how we're viewing this Fed, which is not that the Fed is ready to cut. I don't I don't feel that way. I don't think we've been saying that um, whatever Fed fund futures are, are telling us. Uh, I think this is a Fed that recognizes, look, the, the, the inflation victories are going to be a lot harder from here. We had lower gas prices, which were very beneficial the last two months to make the overall number look good at the core. I actually think this one's going to tick a little bit higher. And I think it's not a bad thing. It's a sign of some of the strengths out there. It, it, we don't want deflation here. Mm-hmm. So CPI probably runs a little bit hotter, but year over year, it's obviously going to be down big. That's what's going to be an important headline number. But PCE is the Fed's choice. That has been running at around 2% annualized, and its core is below the 2% target. So I think the Fed is more concerned with PCE than CPI at this point. The market is more concerned with whatever data you give them. So tomorrow, if it's a little hotter, the market probably sells off. We've got a news alert here out of the SEC, the securities regulator approving 11 spot Bitcoin ETFs. For real, it's official. (laughs) Kate Rooney's got all the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. So the SEC has officially approved a wave of Bitcoin ETFs. The agency putting out a statement last hour saying 11 applications now have the green light to trade here in the U.S. You've got some of the largest asset managers in the world on that list, BlackRock and Fidelity, 
on the list of ETF sponsors, also Grayscale and Kathy Woods Arc as well. These are set to start trading tomorrow on CBOE, NASDAQ, and the New York Stock Exchange. Not much fanfare, though, Melissa, in Chairman Gary Gensler's statement. In the same breath as approving some of these funds, he highlights the risks that still abound in crypto markets, saying, essentially, buyer beware. Gensler says, quote, while we approved the listing and trading of these shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Investors should remain cautious, he said, about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. One person described this approval to me as the worst kept secret on Wall Street. You can see that price run up in Bitcoin in anticipation in the last couple of months here. Still very much a milestone, though, for this asset class seen as a legitimizing moment and a way to make this asset class more mainstream and also bring a bit more safety and stability to these markets. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Thank you, Kate Rooney. By the way, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong will be on last call in a first on CNBC interview. That is tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time with Brian Sullivan. Um, Let's trade it. The SEC statement regarding Bitcoin itself seems to be sort of unusual to actually cast judgment on an asset as opposed to, you know, just approving the ETF. They have to. Uh, And they have to also based upon how outspoken they have been on this, which is also uh, unique. But this is a unique time. This is a unique asset class. And and I think what this does is it really does open up for the broadening of the asset class. Remember, more regulation to me means more institutional adoption and I think a wall of institutional money. Whether it's going, it's it's a good thing actually, we're probably in crypto 2.0, maybe 3.0. The people that have been trading this stuff for 10 years will say it's 10.0. But think about uh, where we were, especially in early 2001, when you saw risk assets, SPACs, you saw the mania that was coming with free money and helicopter fed and whatnot going straight into tokens. And, and I think we're in a very different place. But I think as you look at other places, uh, other other, I would call them vehicles for mass adoption. And that obviously is, you know, Ethereum is already in mass, uh, moved down the curve a little bit. I think this bodes well for Coinbase. Again, it's not because uh, the Bitcoin dynamic takes away from what people need to do on Coinbase. It's not trading Bitcoin on Coinbase that I think gives Coinbase, their their pole position. I think it's the broader asset class and and really the ramp way to that. Mm-hmm. We saw the other initial sort of interesting reaction is Bitcoin sold off a little bit, a little bit softer, and then Ethereum really skyrocketed, almost maybe in anticipation of an Ethereum ETF, which is coming next. Sure. Right, and we're not going to hear about the Ethereum ETF from the SEC until the, until the summer. So I think a lot of retail probably got pulled in. I rode the Ethereum trust up on on the back of this, sold it yesterday. Own it still small, but I sold most of it. That decision's not coming until the summer. And they're following the path. If they, if they approve for Bitcoin, they'll approve for Ethereum. Ethereum probably still bullish going into that. This time in 2022-ish, Coinbase was trading $35, left for dead. Now, Tim had a great trade in this all of last year. Traded up to, if we pull up a Coinbase chart, you look, we traded up to the March 2022 highs about a week or so, maybe two weeks or so ago, about 180 bucks. It's given it back since. It went from a very reasonable stock to, you can make an argument, maybe it's gotten itself a little expensive. But I'm fascinated to hear what Brian Armstrong says about this, because I think the bull side of the equation is right. Tim's right. There's a bear side of the equation for Coinbase as well. For sure. And maybe that last little sell-off sort of and it's regulatory. Know, mirrored that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, they're they're in the crosshairs of a difficult battle. They're not free of this battle uh, also with the regulators. So um, I, I think I, I see some of that as upside because I, I actually think that the market's priced in a lot of this. And I think there's still that overhang. And I think if and when that's removed, it's a major tailwind for the stock. 
Oh, okay. I, as I understand it, Andrew Ross Sorkin will be doing the interview with Brian Armstrong oh. tonight. But still, okay. on the last call, ARS is the man. Right on. Still, an interview that you'll want to watch. Meantime, coming up, we are getting some after hours action in shares of KB Home, the builder on the move after reporting results. Details from the quarter and the full housing trade next. Plus, our periodic check in on uranium. Shares of Cameco surging this week as regulators start the push to increase domestic supply. Is it time to nudge into the nuclear mm. space? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee, right here on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Money. We've got an earnings alert on KB Home. The home builder sinking after hours despite a top and a bottom line beat. Diana Olick has been listening into the call. She joins us now with the latest. Diana. Well, Melissa, it was a mixed bag on KB. Yes, they beat on the top and bottom lines and deliveries exceeded the company's expectations. But the average price of a KB home sold during the quarter was down four and a half percent year over year. That could be part of the stock issue. Gross margin had a narrow beat, which may have been a result of that pricing pressure and potentially buying down mortgage rates. The builders have been doing that aggressively lately. And Q4, we should note, was a big one for mortgage rates. In October, the 30-year fixed hit a more than 20-year high, briefly going over 8 percent. It fell slowly through November and then sharply in December into the 6 percent range. So in the reliefs, CEO Jeff Metzger said, we have experienced a meaningful sequential increase in our net orders for the first five weeks of our 2024 first quarter as consumers are responding favorably to the recent decline in mortgage rates. So again, looking forward, things could get a bit brighter, Melissa. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Um, where do we make of the home builders now that, I mean, rates have come down. That should theoretically be a, a tailwind. And, and the run over the, since, well, since rates came down, right, since that move in late October, I mean, the move in these stocks to now again all-time highs has been staggering. But look at this report. The headline EPS, people will say that's a great thing. But Diana just said it. Deliveries decreased 10 percent. That's not good. Selling price down to $487,000 from $510,000, that's not good. And then you start to talk about the margins, down to 10.9, this time last year, 14.4. I bring it up because if, you, if this is the beginning of a trend on top of what I think is going to be a rise in the unemployment rate and a strapped consumer, I don't necessarily think you have to stay with the home builders here. Um, by the way, it looks like net orders surge, but not as much as what analysts had been expected. Also, on top of them buying down mortgages, so um, that could be a a problem. There's a price the to be paid, but and as someone that's not, I'm not bullish on home builders at all. I'm probably less 
bullish on construction materials. But I, when I think about these home builders, and I think probably the, the best ones are, are PHM and Toll Brothers, but uh, it, they're, they're balance sheets and therefore they're kind of price to book. Their book value should be increasing. And I think that's ultimately a good thing for owning them. I think we're in an environment where I still am of the view that the macro around housing in our country, uh, especially closer to urban spaces, is going to be uh, a lot more difficult over the last few years. It just takes a lot of time to play out. And again, we're talking about basically full employment. When you look at Palti, Palti is a first-time home buyer. That's, to, to Tim's uh, point, that's up over 100% uh, in a 52-week performance. If the home builders do not have to subsidize anymore these mortgage rates, that's a tailwind. Rates coming down, tailwind. But I agree with Guy. I think you kind of overextended this. You would have to see the rates fall precipitously for a mortgage rate. Probably has to be in the fives or high fours. And I don't think we're getting there anytime soon. But if we do, then these stocks will outperform again because everyone floods the market to buy homes, to put homes on the market. I think it's a boon. Home Depot, Mm. upgrade today on the notion that the bottom has been hit in the housing market. Do you agree? Well, it's hard to say the bottom has been hit in the housing market when we haven't hit. I mean, when was the last... I mean, the bottom yeah. in the housing market Hasn't was probably moved. during the, yeah, yeah I, I mean, maybe during COVID. Housing prices so have been setting fresh highs. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what, how you gauge bottom. But exact, well, I mean, that's another show. But with that whoa, said. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of reasons to continue to like Home Depot. However, at some point, valuation is going to the way. And if we could quit, we have a crack staff in EC. Oh, if we could put crack. up a 20-year chart of KBH, this is what concerned me as well. If Carter Braxton Worth, he would point out the fact that we just traded up the levels we last saw in 2005 and you can look and see what happened from there so the potential for a major double top Mm. is now put in kbh all right there's a lot more fast money to come here's what's coming up next not all that glitters is gold sometimes it's uranium the metal surging to 15-year highs and bringing one miner along with it so is it time for your portfolio to brave the elements plus the impact from Boeing's air panel blowout and how airline stocks can fare from here. Everything you need to know about the tarmac trade next. You're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Cameco rising for a third straight day now with nearly 7% just this week. Their uranium company getting a bounce amid news yesterday that the Department of Energy is taking steps to build up a domestic uranium supply. The stock flirting with levels not seen since 2007. One of our own traders thinks Cameco and the whole space still have room to grow. So, Tim, what do you th- we're also expecting the Senate to pass a bill which was That's going to ban the full Russia dynamic and Russia who enriches 50% of the world's uranium. And, and that, you know, it's about 25% of ours. Uh, and let's be clear, 
Cameco, which is up 130 percent since Russia invaded Ukraine, it's not a cheap stock. Um, it's it's a cheap stock if you look at what their production growth was next year, and you look at 30 percent for next year. You look at you know really where they were based upon uh, EPS of a of a you know a 67 dollar uranium price last year. Uranium prices now are over 92, back to 2007 spike levels. The, the other side of this, again, it's supply demand. The demand side of this is that utilities continue to grow demand and actually have to replace uh, re- reserves. And I also think that there are players in the market, whether they might be some hedge funds, they might be some utilities, but in the spot market, there are, there's somebody that's short. There's no question this is squeezing higher. I think it's going to continue to squeeze higher. And I think this is a trade that, you know, we, we look, we've had the guys from Sprout on. They're, they're so smart in the space, and I think they're the right guys to listen to. It was a decade of underinvestment, you know, so it, it, no nukes spurned some great music. I mm. mean, that, that concert that was in Central Park back in the day, I was barely old enough to walk, but well, I got there. Day. Um, Jackson Brown. I, I, I think it was 78, something like that. James Taylor, Carly Simon. Jackson Brown Jackson was Brown, there. Brown that the was boss like was there. Jackson Brown. That was good stuff. CCJ, again, our crack staff can do this. Go, Tim mentioned 07. Let's go back to 2007. This was a $52 stock, much different stock market at the time, but we're in a much different paradigm now. There's, it is an expensive stock, but you know what? NVIDIA was an expensive stock. That grew into its valuation. That was a secular change. There's a secular shift going on. I can't speak about URA, you know, the components and how the ETF is built, but if you want to sort of go downstream, URA probably has room to the upside as well. NextGen is another name that people play. It's a much smaller name, NXE, in the space. But no one wanted to talk about uranium. No one wanted to talk about nuclear power plants. And now you're starting to hear those stories really come up again, and they're being accepted accepted now as clean energy, as they should have been. Problem is waste and the waste that spins off of of it, how to get rid of that waste. But definitely more of a clean energy play. People are talking about it. These two stocks probably can go higher. NXE has been less less overbought than Kamiko. Coming up, the latest on Boeing's plug problems, what the CEO had to say about the blowout and how much more downside could be in store for the stock. That is next. Plus, two more trader acronyms coming your way. Grasso is paying up with his picks and Courtney Garcia is going to drop in to give us some uh, a, the grand scheme of things. That's coming up when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Climbing ahead of tomorrow's inflation data, the Dow jumping 170 points, the S&P up half a percent. The communications and tech sectors seeing the biggest gains, and the Nasdaq outpacing the major averages, up three quarters of a percent now on a four-day winning streak. And it just wasn't U.S. stocks heading higher. Japan's Nikkei index hitting its highest level since March 1990. A big jump in tech stocks helping to lead that run. What did you make of that? Uh, look, the the uh, the eye in bicep is IDEVO, an international ETF, which to me, international <laughs> investing led by Japan, by the way, where there's an overweight, is, is something I believe in. Japan has also put a lot of pressure on the corporates to increase their payout levels. I think the governance story there, we know there's inflation for the first time. What is it, 37 years since we've been here uh, in the Nikkei? I mean, Guy, what was it like back then? It was huh. it was different time. Yeah. I mean, Nick Saban was coaching the Jets, I think. Oh! Oh, he's retiring. Nice job. Thank you. I'm glad you really weave that in. Can we believe this? I mean, I... I I can't believe well, it. Well, Mel's wearing his. She's, you wearing, she's wearing a crimson I, tied I was colors. Like the she tide knew this was when I got happen. dressed today, and not knowing that Saban would announce his retirement. But if you're if you're thinking about retirement, you're well, already retired. I love that. Would say. You know, what's funny is I happen to know this for a fact. He's a, 
He watches. I mean, he's all football. And <laughs> Matt, he's going to watch all the time when you retire. Well, he's, he's got more time to tune well, into Fast Money, and he's, he's he, a market He may give us an acronym guy. next year. Anyway, let's get to Boeing here. Get the very latest on this story. <laughs> Alaska Air United 737 MAX 9 jets remaining grounded until the FAA can complete what it calls enhanced inspections. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun addressing the blowout earlier today on CNBC, telling our Phil LeBeau it can never happen again. Phil joins us now with uh, more from that exclusive interview. And, and Phil, your first question to him, he looks like he looked like he was tearing up. Yeah, that's the most rattled I've ever seen Dave Calhoun. I mean, you can tell that this has uh, really had an impact on him. It would have an impact on anybody. But I think for him, when he saw the video, can you imagine thinking, why are there not two people in those two seats? Thank goodness there were not two people in the two seats next to where the blowout happened on the Alaska Airlines plane. Let me bring you up to speed in terms of where things stand about the inspections and the protocol and getting the parked 737s, uh, 737 MAX 9s back uh, in the air. The FAA working with Boeing, uh, and Boeing, by the way, has an in- internal safety group. They have this group. They've had it for a while. And they are now taking charge with this. They have a war room here in Renton where the MAX is built. They're reviewing the work history, not only for the Alaska Airlines plane, but all of the MAX 9s. And they're coordinating what they're finding along with the NTSB and the FAA. Here's Dave Calhoun from earlier today. It's a safety incident. And nobody's going to live with that, period. So we're all going to be certain, all of us, that the airplanes that fly will never... uh, Never a, a fault like this again, have a safety answer like this again. All right, so what happens with the grounded 737 MAX 9s? The inspection process, the protocol, exactly what airlines have to do to check these planes and check the uh, door plug on the fuselage, they have not been finalized. There's still work going on between Boeing and the FAA. The grounding length remains unclear. Will this extend into next week? Beyond that, nobody's quite sure. The cost, according to Sheila Kayula at Jeffries, is $36 million for Boeing if you game this out over a two-week period. In other words, after two weeks, the MAX 9s are back flying again. The inspection process, as I mentioned, as you look at shares of Boeing, it's not finalized. And I checked today with uh, people in Washington. There's no sense that this is going to happen anytime soon. might be a little bit of a while until we get that. And then finally, with Spirit Aerosystems, you have to watch this stock because they make the max fuselage and they are a part of the NTSB investigation. And they're also going to be working with Boeing and the FAA on these inspections. That was going to be my question, Phil. Does this, does this get SPR off the hook? This, this stock was up over 100 percent since September. It really didn't sell off as violently as I thought it would, given the news. And it actually got some back today. Is there any way this is at right. all clear? Because I've read something like. It was Boeing's job to tighten everything up once they took delivery of the fuselages. Well, Boeing is the final assembler. So Boeing is ultimately responsible to make sure that any plane, when it's delivered, meets all of the safety requirements. Full stop. Now, that doesn't mean that there may not be issues from Spirit Aerosystems, which is the primary supplier. So what you're getting at here is this question, are they going to be absolved of any blame for what happened with the Alaska Airlines uh, incident. No way of knowing, because the NTSB doesn't even know exactly what caused that door plug to be sucked off of the aircraft. 
So as a, as a result, it's a little hard to know exactly what the fallout may be for Spirit Aerosystems. We should point out, Dave Calhoun told us they set up a war room on Saturday where they had their top leaders within the uh, commercial airplane group, those who work on the MAX, uh, top leadership from Boeing, and also Pat Shanahan from Spirit Aerosystems. He came out here to Renton. He was here Saturday all the way through today. Guys, back to you. Um, Phil, ask a question. You, you said, you know, Boeing is responsible for tightening the bolts full stop. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Has Dave Calhoun yeah. come out that decisively and said that to you? Because when Kelly asked him how this could happen, he talked about quality escapes and gathering information, et cetera. Sure. There wasn't sort of a, a clear ownership of this problem, to me, at least. Well, I don't think that there's going to be a clear ownership until people mm-hmm. know exactly what caused this. And, I, and that's not in, you know, I'm not defending uh, Dave Calhoun or Spirit Aerosystems or anyone. Until we know from the NTSB, this is what we believe caused this incident, it's hard for anybody to take full ownership. Having Fair. said that, Melissa, Dave Calhoun says, look, it's unacceptable. It's a mistake. We need to be, uh, we need to own it. We need to say, okay, how do we keep this from happening again? All right. Phil, thank you. Terrific interview. Phil LeBeau. Despite the latest developments, our next guest still believes the financial impact of Boeing is limited. Nicholas Owens is an industrial equity analyst at Morningstar. Nicholas, great to have you with us. Um, What was so striking to me just, you know, on Monday was to see lots of analysts come out and, and basically say there is limited financial impact. And I understand that you're a financial analyst, and so you have to plug things into the model. But aside from a financial impact, which may just, you know, be tens of millions of dollars in the next couple of weeks or so, is there a bigger impact that you're concerned about that will hamper the stock? Sure. I I think I want to take that in two parts, and we can get into the the backdrop of why Boeing has a lot of, uh, let's say, upside to it over the long term, just there's a secular growth market for these planes. But so in terms of the impact of this incident, I like that estimate of, you know, two-week grounding, maybe a couple, $10 million. What I would worry about is if somehow this bolt or door issue spreads to hundreds of more planes and the groundings go on for more weeks, that that would, again, add up to some money that Boeing can afford at this point. The real risk is that the their ability to deliver planes over the next couple months and years gets slowed down again. That's that's really the risk to, let's say, my thesis about the company and my $232 fair value. Is, is there and, no and that concern they would have to that, go back. Go sorry, ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, Nicholas, but I'm, I'm sort of curious about this notion that, you know, that Boeing is a company and under the ownership, the leadership of this one CEO has had some major incidents which make the flying public question whether or not they want to fly on Boeing planes to various degrees. Obviously, this is a much smaller and contained incident versus the prior with the max. Um, but but that the, this can happen and that there isn't a bigger impact or a bigger investigation into Boeing questions about Dave Calhoun's leadership or anything like that. Yeah, so I see this incident, and I think um, Dave Calhoun is speaking in a way that makes it seem that he sees it this way, too. It's a wake-up call, right? Thankfully, no one—everyone walked away from from that plane, and he thanked the crew and and the leadership of Alaska. um, I see this incident as the most recent in a pretty long string of these so-called quality escapes, some coming out of spirit— Ultimately, Boeing, I think, um, you know, the buck stops with them. It's their product. The um, th- This one, 
uh, was far more dramatic. What you've had is a series of notices that a certain tail assembly wasn't done quite right, and, and they've been inspecting them as they go and, and telling people before anything awful happened, right? So th that's, I think, why this takes uh, a higher, um, a more dramatic effect on the reputation. But it's been this dribble of, the, of these quality control issues over the last couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they all come from a disrupted manufacturing operation. All right, Nicholas, you got to leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, Nicholas Owens. Um, Tim, just quickly, what do you think? I, now you know, there's a lot of fear out there in the flying public. I think you're right to address it. It's more than just casual. But uh, I think in, I think this is an opportunity. Um, I, I look at the financial side. I look at the uh, the nines are. Uh, about one seventh of their max fleet. You know, um, I look at the economic impact here, and and I think this is an opportunity. Longer term, out two years. This is about free cash flow at Boeing, getting back to where you were five years ago. Coming up, more trader acronyms. We are not done revealing the names just yet. One of our traders has one that starts with a V, maybe for victory. Mm -hmm. And our other trader is thinking of payday. That's next. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. This week, we are unveiling our 2024 trader acronyms. Happy New Year. Steve Grasso will lay out his picks for the year in just a minute, a few minutes. But before that, we've got a special visit from Courtney Garcia to lay out her stocks. Courtney, what's your 2024 acronym? Yes, and thanks for having me. I'm happy to join remotely today. Um, but our 2024 acronym is V-Scheme. It's our victory scheme for 2024. Um, the V is for value. We're favoring value over growth. We think the rotation that started in October is likely going to continue as we look into 2024. And just as much as last year was a year of speculation on artificial intelligence, we really think you're going to see this return to fundamentals and value is really where you want to take a look. The SE is small caps. Um, this is really going to be an interest rate play. This tends to be a, a category that is going to benefit from interest rates lowering because they take a lot more debt financing. And also, if we see profits accelerating this year, which we do expect to, that tends to be an environment where small caps outperform. Um, our H is for healthcare. Um, if you're really looking for an area that underperformed last year and is a great value, you really want to look no further than healthcare. It also should benefit from lowering of interest rates here, which is clearly our theme, um, as you're going to likely see some M&A activity picking up there. Um, our EM is for emerging markets. Interestingly enough, about 80% of global GDP comes from emerging markets, but it's less than 12% of market cap. But specifically, when you're looking at 2024, it's actually expected that earnings growth is going to be up to 18% next year, which is very impressive. And if you see a lowering dollar, that's only going to help emerging markets. And lastly, we have energy, which the balance sheets on these big energy companies have continued to be very impressive. You've seen these production cuts, which are really going to be hard to unwind. Um, and I really think that's something you want to let, take a look at. So for all of those reasons, this is your victory scheme for 2024. I'm happy she left a couple of letters for me. <laughs> well, well, I mean, we haven't gotten to the fact that it, they're just the first letters of the. Are we playing theme. Scrabble? Hold on, did we, did yeah, we change the game? I was I a mean, little <laughs> of a stretch here, <laughs> to be fair, but you know, I had to, I had to make a word but, of it. So. <laughs> no, but listen, real okay. quick, because I know we're running we're, out of time. We're so out of time. So <laughs> if you look, if we do a, if we do a single shot on Courtney, I thought the V was for like Van Halen, Tim, because that looks like Eddie's guitar behind her. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean that's and, badass. And right now we have the best of both worlds, because let's get, let's let Steve go. All right. All right so, Steve, what's so, your acronym? so mine, underachiever, mine is wage. So the first one is you heard me talk about this, West Rock. So they're going to be merging with Smurfit Kappa, and that, that's going to be probably in the second quarter. The new symbol is probably still going to have a W in it, so it's, go, it's still going to be wage. 
The second one is Amgen. For, for th- this is one that I wish I can go backwards and get some of the performance. You're not allowed to do that. No, right? no, it's okay. forward looking. So we're looking you, at you we're looking try. at we're looking at Lilly. We're looking at Novo, and those two companies added 250 billion and 300 billion in market cap. So if this one has already added 30 billion, there's a lot more room to go there. Then there is Google. Google, I think, has been underappreciated, especially by me. They haven't really been a player in the AI world. I think they're going to be a huge player in 2024. They are third in cloud storage behind Amazon and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I think they have a lot of room to grow from there. Last one, Ethereum. Ethereum Trust. I think for the same way that we started the show with the Bitcoin ETF approval, this one is going to rally most probably into the summer until we get that regulatory headwind removed. All right. Well, thank you, Courtney. It was a good try, even though it had no tickers in it. Uh, coming up, AI is taking over Las Vegas. Everything from cars to refrigerators are getting in on the action. We'll go live from the CES show floor for a look at everything on offer. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. AI is taking over Las Vegas. Intel, Meta, Qualcomm, and even Mercedes-Benz showing off their latest AI offerings at CES 2024. Julia Warston is live from Las Vegas with the latest on all these new gadgets. Julia. Well, Melissa, this year's Consumer Electronics Show is all about AI with chatbots, new AI chips, seemingly for every type of possible gadget. Now, Samsung has been showcasing its AI companion robot called Bali, which interacts with other smart devices in your house and can project pictures or videos on your walls, can even check in on your pets when you're out of the house by sending pictures of them to you. Samsung's new AI fridge tells you what's inside, the expiration dates, and suggests recipes based on what you have. It even lets you order the ingredients right from the refrigerator that you don't have. Now this year, there are more AI-enabled cars and tractors than ever, with Intel just last night announcing a new AI chip customized just for vehicles, as it battles with NVIDIA and AMD to power the Internet of Things. Meanwhile, Mercedes is showcasing its in-car operating system to eventually offer directions and restaurant recommendations with what they say is empathy for the mood of the driver. And L'Oreal this year became the first beauty company to have its CEO keynote at CES, demoing an AI-powered beauty advisor and virtual makeup try-on tool. Now, while there are new giant transparent TVs and foldable phones, Melissa, this year it's the AI tools that seem really different. All right, Julia, and there are also some headlines on Paramount and a potential takeover. Well, what I will say is these headlines are very much in line with what I've been reporting, which is that David Ellison's company Skydance has been in talks with and is potentially interested in buying either Olive or a controlling stake in National Amusements. This is the company that Sherry Redstone um, controls, and through Natural Amusement, Sherry Redstone has a controlling stake in Paramount Global. So the idea here, and this is what a source close to the situation tells me, is that um, Skydance is interested in pursuing National Amusements as a way to acquire Paramount Global. But here's the thing, very important, they have not done due diligence on Paramount Global, so it's early stages. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, up next, Final Trade. Time for the final trade. Tim Seymour. Still, I can't believe the Saban news. Uh, boy, but, you know, the SEC still is number one. BMY was not number one last year. I think Pharma is in trouble. Not. It's time to buy it. Stephen Grasso. Westrock, if this deal goes through, it's the largest global packaging company. 
guy. Nick actually messaged me. He wants to come on and do an acronym. <laughs> P-R-U, by the way, PRU. I hope his acronym is something like WIN or, you know. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.